Well, good morning. My name is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor here at City Reform. We want to dismiss our children for Children's Church. We're moving through a, a book of the Bible, uh, J- the epistle or the letter of James. We've subtitled it uh, Wisdom for Life from the book of James. It's a very practical book. Uh, early on uh, in the book, towards the end of chapter one, James talks about uh, true Christian practice. He's concerned with how we live and what we do. And he tells us three things. He says, if you are religious in the good sense of the word, if you have a true practice, there'll be three types of things you'll be concerned about. These probably aren't all that James could list, but there are three things he lists. First of all, he talks about how we speak. He says, a, a person who really understands their faith bridles their tongue. He says they show concern for the needy by reaching out to the orphan and the widow in their crisis. And finally, they keep themselves unstained from the world. Now, there's a good argument to be made that those three themes actually form the main concerns of the letter. Care for the needy, control of how we speak, and and, and not being shaped by the worldly or uh, the systems, the human systems around us. As we move through the book, we see that James addresses these types of things. And sometimes he does something and comes back to it. But by and large, we see those three things given great emphasis. In chapter 2 of the book, we've seen James emphasizing our care and concern for the needy. Uh, This is the theme that he's brought up. He's going to address in detail. And in, uh, in this passage we're looking at today, we see that he is drawing this part to a conclusion, but he does it with a strong challenge. He tells us that uh, the way in which we care for those around us says something about the genuineness of our faith. It's a challenging passage for a couple of reasons, and we'll have to explore those challenges together. Um, but just to give you, keep you in, in view of the big picture here, we're after today going to be taking a break from the book of James. We'll move through a series of sermons leading up to Christmas as we think about the names of Jesus and things that prepare us to celebrate Christmas. But we'll come back to James in the beginning of the new year, and when we do, he'll pick up with the second of these themes, how we speak. And we'll begin our new year by thinking about how our language reflects our faith and is an expression of our faith. So um, before you, you have a, a, larger, a larger reading. Part of it's in italics, just a reminder of what we've been covering, showing how this is sort of a unity, a flowing of things together. And in conclusion, uh, we draw this together. We'll pick up in, in uh, verse 14 and we'll see James bringing his argument here to a conclusion. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of, them, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say... You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. So we just affirm this is God's word, and yet there are challenges as we do so. Uh, We encounter here today in this passage a very difficult, maybe one of the more difficult passages in the Bible to interpret. There's a couple of reasons for that. The, The first, we don't want to lose sight of this, the first reason is that James says hard things. He challenges us. He says it's possible for a person to make a profession of faith, to have an appearance of faith, even to be part of the visible body and not have true faith. He warns of a person whose faith is dead. That's a a concern for us. Not all of you here today are people who would consider yourself Christians. We always have visitors and people that are here exploring and thinking. But, But many of us probably do consider ourselves to be Christians. We're part of the visible community. We speak about our faith. We confess our faith. We affirm our faith. And James raises the possibility we could be misled. Our faith could be actually dead. We could be false. We could be wrong. We could be missing the mark on something so incredibly important. That's a challenge. It's a challenge for another reason. That is that this passage is not only hard to relate to our own condition, but it's hard to relate to other parts of the Bible. James speaks here of of justification that comes as a result of faith and works. Those of you that are students of the Bible know that in other places, the Apostle Paul speaks in a very different way. He speaks of a justification that is a result of faith alone. We have a hard interpretive challenge as we look at the passage. The Reformation, this great renewal work in the church, something we celebrated the 501st anniversary not long ago, took as its, one of its sayings, its, its mantra, so to speak, its, its central uh, tenet that we are justified by faith alone. And yet here is James saying something that appears to be different. Is James wrong? Is Paul wrong? Was the Reformation wrong? This is a big challenge. Let me just say in the beginning that I have uh, uh, worked hard to try to think clearly about this, but with that said, you are going to have to work hard to think about it too. There's no other way to get around it. I'll just warn you up front. You're going to have to think about this passage, and you're going to have to challenge yourself to think hard, both in its application to yourself and in understanding how it relates together. Let me give you an encouraging illustration, though. Yesterday, our our friend Jeff Winkler rode in a bike race. It was called the Dirty Dozen. Some of the steepest hills in the city are put together into a bike race. Actually, they're some of the steepest roads in the country. 
And they put them together, and they're not only a dozen, there's actually 13 of them. It's like just a cruel joke at the end. The riders started in the morning at 9.30, and I went uh, with my friend Bob Simonelli. We saw him finishing at 4.30 in the evening. Now, they took some breaks, and they ate snacks and rested at the top of the hills. They rode some of the steepest hills, and as they came up this final hill in my neighborhood in Greenfield, it was like a 25% climb at parts of it. It was impressive to see these people riding up. And some of them were groaning in pain as they pushed themselves forward, and some of them just eager to finally be done. But as they did it, my experience in watching them was actually one in which I was inspired. When you get to the top of a hill, a couple of things happen. You've exerted yourself, you've developed in certain ways, you're getting stronger perhaps, and the hard work allows you to see something in a different way you wouldn't have seen it before. And so, yes, there'll be some work here. You're going to have to think. We have a lot more additional scriptures. And maybe you're going to have to go home and look over those things and try to think it out yourself. Maybe, maybe James is going to challenge you in a way that makes you think you need to relate to God differently than what you've done before. But I hold that before you as a good thing. The, the spiritual energy exerted and wrestling with hard biblical truth is good for you. You will not only learn more about yourself, but you'll see spiritual truths in a different way from a different vantage point. So how do we do that? First of all, uh, we'll recognize the challenges of the passage and try to put them in perspective. Secondly, we'll hear the challenge that James gives us on its own terms. Think about our own, uh, our, the state of our own heart and our own faith. Third and finally, though, we'll see the encouragements this passage gives us to grow to live differently and to think differently. So those, uh, those three things. First of all, we'll put this in perspective. When we face a, a challenge, what we want to do is step back and think about the big picture. Think, first of all, what is James doing here? You may remember in the beginning of the book that James started off the whole book by saying, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials of various kinds. You may remember we read that in the early part of the semester. If you were here with us, you would have heard it. That's a challenging verse too. James says, consider it joy when you're facing a test. It's a, it is, though, we hopefully saw helpful because we are all facing tests and trials, difficulties. During the course of the week, I, I've been journaling a lot more regularly the last couple of years, trying to reflect on my prayers, my thoughts, and what God's doing in my heart. And often it's really helpful to write out, these are the problems I'm facing. It's just a relief to sort of put them on paper. And my guess is all of you can do that also. The journaling, maybe you do that or don't do that. But, but all of you, if you had to stop and think about it, would say, these are, the, these are the real challenges I'm facing in my life. I would guess there's very few of you that don't feel and know that reality. James says, this is the place in your life where God is at work. That's been the theme of his letter. Blessed is the man who's steadfast under trial, James says. When, you are stead when God is keeping you steadfast in the midst of a difficulty, he's actually changing you. Your faith is producing perseverance when it's in a trial. And then, as we mentioned before, James looks in three areas in his book. Care for those in need, use of our tongue, how we speak, and how we're affected by the worldly systems around us. Each of those areas constitute a sort of trial or a test. I think James is telling us those are some of the places this is going to be worked out in your life. 
as we come to the end of this book, or the end of this part of the book, this first point, care for the needy, James raises the possibility that when our faith is tested, we would discover an uncomfortable reality, that our faith isn't actually alive. It's only something we say, but it hasn't gripped our heart. It hasn't changed us. It's not a living and active faith. James speaks of a situation. Again, if you've been following with us, this is a similar thing he's talked about for many paragraphs here. He speaks of a situation where you're gathered together and a Christian comes into a Christian assembly. A brother, he says, uh, comes before you and has a problem. They are, to quote James here, he says, they are uh, uh, poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Now, there's a lot of ways that we can experience uh, lack in our life, that we can come in with a great emotional needs or, or loneliness, or we can think of all of the problems people bring. But James is very practical, and he presents a very practical situation. A person comes observably in need. They're, 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 not, they're hungry, and their clothes are, are, are insufficient. You can think of a, a thin jacket on a, on a cold winter day in Pittsburgh. And James imagines a scenario where someone speaks a blessing to them but does nothing. Now, look carefully at the blessing. It's really pretty interesting here because the blessing speaks the words that match the condition, but the person does nothing. This is the scenario that he speaks of. They say, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that are needed for the body. This is verse 16. So James imagines a scenario where a person comes in and we use words to meet them and do nothing to care for them. Now, now the, the situation's obvious, isn't it? James sort of paints it that way. He made an obvious scenario. He says, uh, uh, what good is that? I think we'd all have the similar analogy, especially if we identify ourselves in the position of the person with great need. Uh, years ago, you may remember one of our assistant pastors, Sam DeSocio, uh, would, would love to quote this verse. We sort of did it as a joke. But if one person, one of us, had a hard situation, they were going to go do something, and we talk about it, and then they're going to go have a hard conversation, but you weren't going to go with them, you would say, be warm and filled, <laughs> right? God bless you as you go do that hard thing. But at its root is an uncomfortable truth. If we merely speak to someone, oh, may God bless you, but don't get involved, we've actually used our faith and our words of faith as a barrier to doing and obeying God. James made it as absolutely clear that, that our calling as Christians is to care for the needs of people around us. Jesus did this, he modeled it, and he commanded us to do it. Now, we know we can't solve every problem. There are limits to what we can do, and all sorts of wisdom is needed. He's talking about the principle here. And the situation arises where someone uses their words of faith to excuse disobedience. That is James, the concern that James has here. Now, he imagines a scenario where someone takes it a step further, and that, that person, uh, verse 18, objects to him. They say, uh, after James had concluded, listen, if, if your words of faith are a barrier to obedience, then your faith is actually dead. He's very, very stark. He's very direct. He's making a point. And he anticipates an objection. Verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
You can, you can kind of hear that sort of a voice, which is the same. Now, James, listen, there's lots of ways we experience our faith, lots of different emphasis that we have. You may emphasize caring for people. I emphasize just believing. James won't have any of that. He says this, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And then he gives three examples, and we'll look at those in a moment. He talks about a negative example. He says, even demons believe, but they don't obey. And then he talks about two people who demonstrated faith with great obedience, even in the midst of costliness and difficulty. The concern that James has here is that we would not use our doctrine or our teaching as an excuse for disobedience. But it does use language that's difficult. He goes on to say, not only does he speak about um, the importance of works, but in three places, James says specifically, a person is justified not by faith alone, but by their works. Now, this is where we have to think hard because it creates a challenge of biblical interpretation. There's no way around acknowledging it's a challenge. The reasons it's a challenge is that where James says specifically three times, you're justified by your faith in your works. The Apostle Paul in other places says very explicitly, just as clearly, you are justified by faith alone, not by works. And we saw one of them already in the passage. And you may have noticed these past two weeks, I've been intentionally pairing up James and Paul together in one, uh, one uh, liturgy, one reading of Scripture as we move through the service to hear these voices together, hopefully recognizing their unity our assurance of pardon, Paul says he saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness. And he goes on to say we are justified by grace. In other places, Paul's even more explicit. Paul will say things in Ephesians 2. He'll say we are, we are justified, we are saved by faith, not by works, so no one could boast. In, in uh, Romans chapter 4, uh, Paul would even go on to cite the story of the uh, great father of the faith, Abraham. The same guy that, that James uses. And say, look, doesn't it say that Abraham was justified by faith? Uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Abra if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a challenge, isn't it? It's flat out a challenge. What do we do with it? Uh, some have concluded that Paul and James were presenting different versions of Christianity, uh, presenting the idea that the early church was divided or, at worst, diluted. In that case, we'd have to pick one or the other. We could be Paul or James, faith or faith plus works. Or perhaps we conclude that we can't trust the Bible at all. The Reformation was wrong that we can't really know anything about the Christian faith. This is challenging and it's important. But before we jump to any of those drastic conclusions, let's stop and look closer. Let's recognize, first of all, the many things that Paul and James clearly agree on. Both of them agree that we are saved by faith. The whole book of James is really about faith that is tested. We are told that receiving God's word with meekness leads to the salvation of our souls, and when James asks in verse 14, can your faith save you? He seems to be implying that a certain type of faith does save us, 
but another kind, a dead kind, does not. James and Paul also agree on the necessity of works. That is, the necessity that Christians obey. This is central to the teaching of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, immediately after Paul says, we're saved by faith, not by works, he goes on to say, now, O Christian, you've come to know Jesus by faith. You are recreated in Christ for the good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. In other words, Paul and James agree on faith. They agree on the importance of good actions that go in the Christian life. But they, first of all, have different pastoral concerns. James is concerned that people use their talk about faith as an excuse for their disobedience. James knows talk can be cheap. Paul is concerned that people use their obedience to law as a tool of self-righteousness, claiming something from God. Both are true, both are legitimate pastoral concerns, and both are addressed in different ways. But secondly, they have different perspectives on faith and even the word justification. When the Bible speaks about faith, we're generally thinking about faith in God, a posture of a person trusting God, relationship with the creator of the universe. Faith is not something we see, but it does produce results. When we think about faith, we can think about it from two perspectives. We can think about it from God's perspective or from the human perspective. I think it's generally true that when Paul speaks about faith and justification, he speaks from God's perspective. He talks about a person trusting Christ. He talks about the change that happens, what God tells us about how we're changed when we trust Him. And in his language of justification, as you notice, maybe in Romans 4, you may have noticed, he says, before God. In fact, many places when Paul references justification, he talks about this change in reference to God. According to Paul, justification is what happens when God counts as righteous because we're connected to Jesus by faith. Now, someone else might ask a different question from a human perspective. How do you know when a person has faith? You can't see it. How do you know when God has received our faith and linked us to Christ? How do you know it's happening? We think of faith from the human angle. James, like Jesus before him, tells us that faith can be seen in what it does. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. And so James here is concerned when he speaks of faith and justification about how our faith is revealed to be true. The frame of reference is not God's eternal counsel or his divine perspective. It's not the perspective of God declaring us righteous or bringing us into the kingdom of light, out of the kingdom of darkness. It's the perspective of our faith being revealed. And that's generally one of the ways we use the word justify in English. When we read Paul, it's clear that he means justify as the act of God as a judge declaring something to be true. Connected to Jesus, you are righteous. But James uses it in a more familiar way, a way that sometimes Jesus will use, a way that says your faith has been revealed your faith is justified. Its evidence is seen by others. Again, the divine perspective, a human perspective. We can imagine using this language in our own lives. If your boss 
hired you and you had a very difficult job and after it was done and you, you, you acquitted yourself well and you were successful, she looked at you and said, listen, I'm so glad that went well because you justified our decision to hire you. It, it says it's revealed that the decision was good many, many, many months or weeks or whatever after the decision was actually made. Well, that's this perspective James has. And as we look at the passage, he makes it clear that's what he's talking about. Verse 18, he begins the whole discussion by talking about how we show our faith. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my works, my faith by my works. He wants to show you something. When James thinks of faith, he he knows it can be real and living and active, but he, he tends to refer to the things people say. Faith could be living, it could be dead, it could be real. When it's tested, we'll find out. Even the language of uh, continuing the discussion is language of revelation and showing. Verse 20, do you want to be shown that faith apart from works is useless? He's going to show us something as he teaches us. And when he draws his conclusions, he says in verse 22, you see faith was active as it worked. Verse 24, you see how a person is justified. James wants to show us something. He wants to reveal something to us. This can happen in the midst of our lives. Our faith can be justified in this sense. It can be revealed. It can be made manifest. It can be visible in what we do in the midst of a trial. And the Bible tells us in the last day, in the great day, in the final judgment, we will be openly acknowledged and acquitted before all people. There's a sense in the end in which a Christian who's been trusting in Christ all along has that verdict expressed openly and publicly to all people. This is the concern James has. Having untangled it from some of these theological concerns, though, let's listen to James on his own terms. Because he's deeply concerned that we not be deluded by the essence of our own faith. If the first part was challenging to think about it biblically together, the second is a challenge personally. James gets in our business. He uses a very practical and uncomfortable analogy. Does your faith lead you to obedience when it's uncomfortable or costly? That, after all, is the reason why the person dismisses the needy person, their needy brother, with a blessing but no action, it would be time-consuming, costly, uncomfortable, entangling to get involved in this. And friends, we recognize the many challenges of understanding how to actually do this. James is talking about the principle. We can take that principle, can't we, and apply it to our lives? Where around you is God testing you by bringing you into a place of need? Where is God allowing room for your faith to be expressed? And how are you tempted to say, well, you know, I'm just so thankful for grace. Maybe it doesn't really matter what I do. Can you imagine Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who invites his followers to come following him, picking up his cross, their cross daily to follow him into a life of sacrificial service where we draw life from him and learn to depend on him in service. Can you imagine Jesus saying, well, you know the whole, the cross part? That was really optional. 
I think James is rightly unnerved by that potential. Yes, we are absolutely saved, brought into saving relationship with Jesus by faith alone. But that faith that clings to Christ as a Savior and Lord is always active. If we've really seen the mercy that God showed us on the cross, will we not be merciful to others? So James says, your faith will be seen. And it's possible, he says, that faith can be dead. He gives us three analogies here, three arguments that he makes. First of all, he says this, do you know, he said, demons have good theology. It's an interesting argument, isn't it? I wish James told us more about demons here. He doesn't. He speaks to people that are, uh, are, are readily on board with what he's telling them. He doesn't explain or defend or elaborate, but he simply tells them, do you not know they're spiritual beings that have great theology in the sense they believe God is real. They believe Jesus was raised from the dead. But they don't submit. They don't obey. They don't trust. They're not relationally connected. It's possible to have a mental assent to truth and not be engaged with the truth. It's not personal. Throughout the years, down through the church history, Christians have always recognized this reality. They say things like the, the greatest distance in the world is the distance from your head to your heart. And if you've heard that before, you know the saying means you hear a truth, you believe a truth, do you grasp it in a life-changing way in your heart? Just an analogy. James says uh, talk is cheap, and he speaks here of a faith, a profession that is useless if it doesn't lead to obedience and trust. Secondly, he speaks of Abraham. Abraham's the father of Jewish and Christian faith. Even uh, Muslims would refer to Abraham as the founder of their faith, certainly an important character historically. Early in his life, God called him out of his place in the known civilized world, the city of probably near modern-day Babylon, Ur of the Chaldeans, and he followed the promise of God into a foreign land living his life in tents, waiting for a promise. Early on in the story, the book of Genesis gives us a divine perspective on Abraham's faith. It says he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 15. It's what both James and Paul reference. But as the life unfolded for Abraham, his, li his life faced many tests. And some of them he didn't pass. He moved away in cowardice and disobedience and the thought that someone would steal his wife and he lied, putting his wife in the promise of God to bless him through a son in great danger. And yet at this climactic moment of his life, Abraham took the child of promise and offered him before God, believing that God could fulfill his promise. As Christians, we know now that God has clearly said that no one would ever sacrifice a child literally, and God didn't, absolutely did not call him forward in this, but in a sense, he and we offer the things most precious to us, to God, with open hands. And so we learn here that faith is costly, and James is pointing out that Yes, in the beginning, Abraham was credited with righteousness because he believed, that's Paul's language of justification. But James is pointing out later, faith was revealed in a costly way. 
The story of Abraham is not complete until his faith is shown to the watching world, to those who would follow him as a father. And third and finally, he uses an opposite example. Abraham's the quintessential insider, the father of the faith. Rahab is the ultimate outsider. She's not Israelite. In fact, she belongs to the people of Jericho. She's in the city. They go to scout as Joshua finally is about to lead the descendants of Abraham into the promised land. They stand first before the gates of Jericho, the great walled city. Joshua sends in the spies to find out what it's like. And the spies are, are uh, in a difficult scenario. They want to see the city, but they don't want to get caught. They have to take refuge in the one place where people don't ask uncomfortable questions. They go into a brothel. That's the story. And there the most surprising thing happens. Rahab, the prostitute, speaks to them about her faith in God. She's heard of the God of the people of Israel, and she wants to help. And so when the king learns of their presence and tries to chase them down, she first of all hides them and smuggles them over the wall. Rahab will be spared when the city was sacked. She'll become a member of Israel. Presumably she'll change her profession, though the Bible uh, doesn't give us any details on that. But she's married. She enters into the life of God's people. And later, she's listed in the book of Matthew as a descended not, uh, ancestor not only of David, but of Jesus. Very unlikely sort of person to list in the lineage of a king. But she had a costly faith, a faith willing to do a brave and frightening thing. If the Israelites had not succeeded, her life and the life of her family could have been in danger. And so Abraham shows us that true faith leads to costly engagement with the world. True faith, when it's really alive, will cause us to live differently. What do we do with that knowledge? Let me close with three observations. This, like I said, is hard. There's no other way through it. It challenges us to think and to probe our own hearts. Three things we can take from it, however. First is... There is a benefit in acknowledging our own spiritual condition. It's possible that having been confronted by the teaching of James, you would be drawn to the conclusion today that your faith is not real. You followed your parents, perhaps, your roommate, or your spouse. You've followed along, you've said the things, you've nodded your head, you've said a prayer or raised your hands, but it hasn't been real, it hasn't changed your heart, and you know it because it doesn't make any difference day to day, week to week. We're not talking about perfection, we're talking about a faith that shows up. James does not give us a checklist here to say, oh, well, now I, I know I've earned something, but he says, listen, if it's real, you will know and it will change you. Difficult as that may sound, friends, it could be one of the best things that you would ever know. When I was a college student, if you had asked me in the right setting and the right time if I was a Christian, I may have said yes, but I wasn't. Not even close. It wasn't a bang. 
If you would ask me, are you obeying Jesus? Are you a follower? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you trying to do what he says? I would have said no. James tells us that we don't, we don't pick and choose. We don't get to say, I'll take Jesus as Savior, but I'll wait for the Lord part later. I'm so thankful what he did on the cross, but I'm going to stay as the Lord of my own life, even though he's the risen Lord and Savior of the world and the universe. So he brings us to the point of decision. Maybe the best thing we could ever read and know is to say, I need faith. James says, receive the word with meekness. Surrender with God. Receive the message of the gospel that you are saved by the work of Jesus. He is a Savior and Lord. You add nothing to it. And yet we give up everything before the Lord and Savior that gave himself for us. Secondly, we learn encouragement from Abraham. I wrestled with this a lot yesterday, and as the evening wore on, there was a part where having understood the passage, I felt discouraged. Go do it. It's almost like this is James giving us the Nike slogan. That's what I felt. And then I remembered that James isn't telling us, don't believe that your uh, you know, faith without works is going to help you. He's not telling us to just go work. But he's simply telling us that real faith, real faith produces something. Friends, you and I need more faith. And we need to trust God in the midst of the, tr- the trials and difficulties we're finding. My, my list in my book, that, that's the real thing that James is talking about this week. And I have the opportunity to look for God and to trust him in the midst of trials. Abraham learned this over time. He didn't get it right away. He made mistakes. Having been justified by trusting God, he learned to bring it into practice slowly over time waiting over the years as God fulfilled the promise, finally receiving a son, and in this great climactic moment of his life, a life of trusting and service, God empowered him and helped him to bring everything he had learned into practice, and he held before God the one most precious thing in his life, the link to God's promise to make him a great nation. He held up his son before God, Friends, before we can do great things in faith, we will need a life of faith. Often slow, many times stumbling, faltering, wrong turns, repenting, believing, going back, recognizing through James and the rest of the Bible the places where we fail and the places where we need more grace and more faith. Humble yourself before God, James will say. Humble yourself before God and he'll lift you up. A life in humility prepares us for the chest that God gives us. Third and finally, remember Rahab. Rahab, who was the most unlikely of all people to be in the Bible, the most unlikely to be in the lineage of the Messiah, who everyone else would have considered to be too far gone. She heard of the things of God and she believed. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking about all of these things and you're saying, I don't know how I could match up. I don't know how I could ever meet these requirements. Rahab, the most unlikely of candidates, did. God's grace and mercy 
can extend to you in any of your places, wherever you are. No matter where you failed, how far short you've fallen, no matter how much in the past your faith has been revealed to be insufficient, the grace and the mercy of God can meet you there. The word of God, received in meekness, is able to save your soul no matter where you are. And so, humble yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. Friends, he has worked in the past and continues to care for us as we face trials. Let's close in prayer.